Uh, turn your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, while you're turning there, let me um, sort of catch you up. If you're visiting with us, um, catch you up on, on where we are. We, um, you may be wondering, this is an odd uh, Advent passage. We don't do Advent every year. Um, so every other year, even-numbered years, we do an Advent series. Uh, odd-numbered years, uh, we kind of continue on with where we are which is a little odd this year because um, we've done some different things. We're sort of catching up. Uh, we had started a series in Genesis earlier this year um, and took a break uh, to do a couple of other things and have gotten back into our series in Genesis. So uh, we are now at Genesis 12, um, beginning in verse 10. And I'll actually read through uh, verse 4 of chapter 13. It's our practice here when we read Scripture, uh, if you're able, to stand. Uh, So let me ask that you do that now. Now there, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you're a, beautiful, a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that that the woman was very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. And now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would so work in Your Word now. Your inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word to root out sin in our lives, to grow us in holiness, to conform us into the image of Christ that we might honor and serve and glorify You. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. We um, 
some of us in, in my family this week had a, an interesting conversation. You know, distracted driving is a thing, right? I mean, that's, that's a term. Distracted driving is a term that has um, really probably grown up out of the smartphone era. It, it wasn't really a term that you talked about until everyone had access to email, text messages, surfing the net, in their hand, everywhere they went, at any given moment. And you can watch people walk driving down the street, and, and you can tell they're doing this as they're driving. Funny, really, because um, we have a car that, for the life of me, I can't figure out where how to control the heat and the air without completely losing sight of the road and focusing on my heating and air buttons and knobs and I have to push and I can't find which one's the fan speed and which one's the which fan do I want on and the temperature up and down is it's far more confusing you kind of want to go to car manufacturers and go uh, you know you could help solve the distracted driving thing with better easier uh, controls on radio and heating and air and all that People are distracted when they drive. Sometimes parents just get distracted because the kids in the backseat are screaming and yelling and, hey, mom, look at this, and, hey, dad, what about... And you can't turn around and look because you're trying to drive and you're going to see grandparents for Christmas and, and you just have to say, stop. I can't, I can't look. I can't turn around and see what you're doing. I'm driving a car. Distracted driving is a thing. It's a... It's a legitimate issue in our world. In many ways, uh, that's what we have in this passage. It's not so much distracted driving as it is distracted living. Abram's eyes of faith. In, in the first nine verses of chapter 12, Abram is set up as a model of faith. A model of one who lives by faith. Who will go where God calls him to go. Stop when God calls him to stop, not knowing where he's going to go and where he's going to stop when he gets to where he's going. He's just going to stop when God says, this is the place. He's set up as the model of the one who lives by faith. I can't see. I don't know. I'm trusting God's guidance and direction in all of this to do what he wants to do. In me, with me, through me, wherever it is he's taking me. He's set up in these first nine verses as the, the model of, of the one who lives by faith. Who's and then and then in verse 10, those eyes of faith look elsewhere. Those eyes of faith are distracted. They're taken off of God and His loving, sovereign care for Abram, and, and they are placed on the world around him. And in many ways, I think, as Moses wrote this chapter, he wants you to feel the sudden jarring jerk. You know, it's, it's almost that first turn on Space Mountain. Where the, the roller coaster just suddenly takes a, a sharp jerk in a different direction. You almost sense that Moses wants you to feel that as soon, I mean, no sooner is Abram set. He's built a tent between Bethel and Ai, he's built an altar to the Lord. 
And in the very next sentence, verse 10, there's a famine in the land, so Abram leaves and goes down to Egypt. It's, as, as, it's almost as if as soon as he settled in this place that God brought him, he said, ooh, famine, this is bad, I've got to go somewhere else. I've got to go look for help somewhere else. It, it makes sense that if Abram is going to bless the nations, and if Abram's going to live and, and dwell in this promised land, and this land is going to be for Abram and his descendants, you would think, makes sense, that in order for that land to be his land, he should, you know, stay in it. And instead... Right off the bat, he's settled, and then there's a famine, and he packs up, and he leaves. The famine sort of drives him to look elsewhere for refuge in Egypt. Now, I, I feel a little obligated to make a comment on your own personal Bible reading, study, and understanding. And it is this. We need to be careful about passing judgment when Scripture doesn't pass judgment. Notice Moses nowhere in this passage gives us any indication that going to Egypt was inherently, in and of of itself, sinful. It's certainly reasonable that if I've got family and servants and cattle, and all the things Lot and his family, if Abram has all these people he has to provide for, it makes sense that you go where there's food to provide for those people. Moses nowhere comments that that leaving the promised land to go into Egypt was automatically sinful. It might be. He could be taking matters into his own hands and saying, I'm not going to trust God and His provision in the place that He told me to land. But at the same time, it also serves as a bit of a model for numerous other trips to Egypt. For the nation of Israel's own deliverance from Egypt. After 400 years of slavery, that'll come many centuries later after Abram. But notice what is absent. It may not be automatically inherently sinful that Abram went to Egypt. But notice where the sin is. First of all, it shows up in that it's not until verse 17 that God shows up in this passage. In other words, there's no indication that Abraham gave any 
admission or of, of dependence on God for wisdom and guidance and direction. He gives no consideration to God for his trip to Egypt. There's something there for us, is there not? Do we, do we consider God? Do we seek His wisdom in every decision? Even the ones that seem perfectly obvious to us? I mean, there's, there's something to be said there for seeking God's wisdom and counsel and understanding and insight into any and every situation, even ones that seem perfectly obvious to us. There's, there's no sense that Abram gives any consideration to God at all as he leaves the promised land to go to Egypt to seek food. Abram and Sarah and, and all that are with him, Lot, and everyone there under his care, they all pack up and head down to Egypt. And it's along the way that Abraham has, and you notice I'm back and bouncing back and forth between Abram and Abraham. His, he won't be Abraham for a few more chapters, but I can't help it. I'm trying to fight it. It's not working. Um, Abraham has this realization. My wife is attractive. My wife is going to be actually a bit of a problem for me when we get to Egypt. And it's not just it's not just a husband saying my wife is attractive. Because you get confirmation in verse 14 that that she seems to be beautiful in the eyes of all that beheld her. The Egyptians saw her and they all saw that this is a beautiful woman. That made Abram nervous. Now Abram knew the, the customs and laws of the land. In the absence of Sarah's father, he, actually her half-brother, so technically not exactly a lie, sort of, that if she if he if he goes into Egypt and says this is my sister I'm her brother he now has the authority to give permission to anyone who would want to marry her he assumes that that will buy him time most likely this seems to be kind of what's going on in his mind he assumes that that will buy him time in Egypt to escape when the question arises She's attractive. The Egyptians are going to find her beautiful. One of them will come along and say, I want to marry her. And he will say, let me think on it. And then they can escape. He thinks he's buying himself some time. So Abram devised this plan that they would uh, announce that she is his sister, and not his wife. It's partly true. See, we, we, we do this, don't we? Well, it's kind of true. I mean, she is my half-sister. 
So, I mean, I'm not really telling a lie. Except the, the whole point is to, to lie. The whole reason he created that plan was, let's go with the sister option and not the wife option because we need to deceive these people so that things will go well for us in Egypt. Maybe, naturally, that makes perfect sense. Naturally, that seems to, to, to make sense to us, but that's the problem. Abram is thinking naturally. Abram's thinking fleshly. He's thinking humanly. He's thinking like the natural man. He's not thinking like one who just in the first nine verses of of this chapter was the model of one who lived by faith. He would rather right now in this moment walk by sight. I'm not going to trust God to protect us and tell the truth. I'm instead... God needs a little bit of help from me this time. I know better. I know how to handle this situation. You see, just look back at verse 2 of chapter 12. He has a promise. He has a promise from God, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abraham is taking into his own hands and and seeking every way possible to make sure that that verse comes true. He needs to help God in this case. He's doing whatever he can to make sure that verse 2 comes true. Abram would be a blessing to the nations, a blessing to all those around him. And so in his mind, he has to preserve himself. He has to preserve his line. If if they say, hey, this is his wife, we'll kill him, and then we can take her for our, to be our wife. Well, if he dies, then how can verse 2 possibly come true? You, it makes sense, right? You follow this. You're tracking with this in your mind. You're thinking to yourself, well, if I'm dead, then I can't possibly be a great nation and be a blessing to people after me. I pretty much have to be alive for verse 2 to actually come true, so let's make sure that I stay alive. It, humanly speaking, it makes perfect sense. In fact, look at verse 13. Notice Abram's focus. Notice his mindset. Honey, here's the plan. When the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife. And then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you're my sister that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. You see Abram's angle? Abram's angle is, if I'm going to be a blessing, if verse 2 is going to come true, I need to be alive. So I need, when we go into Egypt, Sarah, it doesn't really matter what happens to you. It matters what happens to me. I need to make sure that I'm protected and I'm alive. So I've got to help God out 
and will weave this little tale intended to deceive the Egyptians. How often do we do that? Going through trials. Things get difficult. Things get tough. Life around us makes us scared. It's easy enough to live by faith when you're healthy and happy. The test is when you're sick and hurting and scared and struggling. Who can't live by faith when everything's going their way? But when fear enters the scene, when trials show up on your doorstep, when difficulty knocks, do you become a distracted liver? Maybe not a distracted driver. You know, maybe you follow the Jordan Spieth, Tim Tebow commercials and you throw your phone into your glove box when you drive. But do you become a distracted liver? No longer looking where we're supposed to live. Look, taking our eyes off of a life of faith, even if only for a moment. You remember Hebrews 11. The eyes of faith are able to focus on things that aren't actually physically tangible and within your grasp. The eyes of faith are able to to take hold of that which is yet to come. Faith is the conviction of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen, not yet yeah, not seen. We're going to sing a, a Michael Card song in just a second. He has a, a song about faith to see with my heart. No, to, oh, now I've lost it. To hear with my heart, to see with my soul, to be guided by a hand I cannot hold, to trust in a way that I cannot see, that's what faith must be. How easy it is for us to get distracted by our possessions or our lack of them, by the ease of our life or the difficulty or struggle of it, to look elsewhere for deliverance from trials rather than to look to God. Abram, it seems, considers this situation in Egypt and looks to God and says, I tell you what, God, I'll handle this one. I've got this one. I'll make sure we get through this one. And then, and then you can have the rest. You can have those that are yet to come. We do this, Facebook probably more than any. The doctor says, your friend, perhaps you, your friend, your spouse, a loved one, gets a report from the doctor, the cancer's gone. I'm, I'm completely cancer free. And you read the comments, God is good. Yes, absolutely He is. And, and, and it is good and right to give 
honor and credit and praise to God for that report. But would we say God is good if the report was the opposite? Would we say God is good if the answer from the doctor is not at all what we wanted to hear? We determine God's goodness based on our own circumstances and surroundings. Abram takes matters into his own hands. He's decided that he needs to help God out a little bit. He's guilty of this distracted living. I don't know if you noticed this or not. But Abram got uh, exactly what he wanted. You see in verse 16, he's piled up with gifts. He's overflowing with all that he could possibly receive from Pharaoh. See, there's something he hadn't counted on. He hadn't counted on Pharaoh taking an interest in his wife. He thought he could, he could stave off all the regular normal Egyptians, but, but it doesn't matter if he's the brother or the father. It doesn't matter what role or authority he has. If Pharaoh says, I want her, he can't, can't do anything about it. And here in verse 16, things go well with him. For, this, for her sake, he dealt Pharaoh dealt well with Abram, sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, camels. He had everything he could possibly want. It's, it's lifestyles of the rich and famous in that verse. It's, it's classic cars in a multi-car garage. That's, that's what Pharaoh's living right there. And yet he sits at home alone. Singing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. What does it gain Abram to get all of that and to lose his wife? What does it really gain him to get all of these possessions and, and to let go the most important, supposed to be the most important person in his life? And yet, the promise is still in jeopardy. Oddly enough, Abram thought, if I do this, if I take this angle, then, then I can preserve the promise of verse 2. I will be a blessing to the nations and generations will come from me. And now, because he's done those things, the promise is in jeopardy. He's supposed to be a blessing to the nations. But according to verse 17, he is not a blessing to Pharaoh, to Egypt, to Pharaoh's house. They're plagued with something. Pharaoh and his house have plagues because of Sarah. We don't know exactly, probably some sort of skin disease given the language of these verses. Perhaps they get sick, they get some sort of skin issue, and she says, Sarah, what's going on? What's, what's the deal? And she comes clean with, well, actually, Abram is, yes, my half-brother, but he's also my husband. 
And with that, Pharaoh responds, How could you possibly put me in this kind of danger? God promised that Abram would be a blessing to the nations, and instead he's bringing a curse on Pharaoh's house. The very promise that he's trying to preserve is already falling apart around him. And, and in verse 19, you, you can almost sense the anger um, in Pharaoh's language. Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. The, the language there literally is here. Wife, take, go. It's that short, that choppy, that staccato. He's so angry and frustrated with Abram that he's here. Wife, take, go. And he sent them away. Do you know Numbers 32, verse 23? My, my money's on no. My money's on Numbers 32. Like, I have no idea what's in Numbers 32, much less what verse 23 has to say, except that the end of the verse says, your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. That's exactly what's happened to Abram. God has brought his sin out into the open. God has exposed his sin for Abram's own good and for God's own glory. Notice, God never showed up in Abram's thinking. God never showed up. As long as Abram was making plans and trying to figure out how to get food and how to provide for his family and where to go and should we go to Egypt? Should we go anywhere at all? Nowhere ever did... Oh, and Sarah, what are we going to do about the fact that you're my wife and my sister? What are we going to tell them? Nowhere does God ever show up in Abram's thinking. He's at work. He's sovereign even over these events. But God shows up, humanly speaking, when His Word is in jeopardy. His ancestor, the ancestor, is safe and secure, alive, well, wealthy now beyond measure. He has all this money and he's, he's fine. The ancestor is fine, but the ancestress is not. She's in another man's house. Abram thought he could help. And now the very promise he thought he could preserve is now in danger of falling apart. God alone can preserve His promises. God uses this plague in Pharaoh's house to expose Abram's sin, his guilt, and his shame. We don't like for sin and guilt and shame to be exposed. We wear clothes to cover sin and guilt and shame. We lie to hide sin and guilt and shame. We don't want our sin, our guilt, our shame exposed. Except that 
it's only in the exposing of that sin and guilt and shame that we can find restoration. It's only in exposing that sin that we can find forgiveness. We read in Hebrews, whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Abram is loved by God, and God proves that love for him in this passage by actually exposing this sin and guilt and shame. Sin is forgiven. He's called out openly for it. And imagine the shame of being outmoraled by pagan Pharaoh. God's chosen promised person, Abram's seed, in this passage is outmoraled by the Pharaoh of Egypt. He takes the higher moral ground here. Abram does not. And yet, there's forgiveness and restoration. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. First, God will accomplish His purposes and quite honestly doesn't need our lies, our human efforts Trusting in man's ways. He doesn't need our, our, our own earthly, natural wisdom to bring them about. That's exactly what Abram does here. He rationalizes his thinking. The promise is in jeopardy. I have to make sure it's preserved. God needs my help. And so he told a lie to advance God's causes. In other words... The ends don't justify the means. means. Sin can't be justified for the greater good in this passage. Second application. Notice though that God will accomplish His purposes despite our sin. He doesn't need our, our sinfulness to bring about His purposes. And yet our sinfulness can't thwart His plan because we read the first four verses of chapter 13. And where does the passage end? Where does verse 4 end? Where is Abram at that point? Exactly where he started. In his tent, next to his um, uh, uh, place for sacrifices, between Bethel and Ai, exactly where he had started, right there at his altar, in his own tent, God restores him despite his sin. A third application that's connected to that one. Forgiveness doesn't mean deliverance from consequences. We can be forgiven for sin, but that doesn't mean we won't have to deal with the consequences of them. Because read the next ten chapters. And these consequences, the effects of Abram's sin keep coming back. It's quite possible that Hagar is one of the female servants listed in chapter 12. The consequences 
of Abram's sin will continue to haunt him for several more chapters. Lastly, let me point you to forgiveness. Because that's exactly where Abram ends up. Right back in Canaan, restored, fully and completely restored, right where he should have been, right back in fellowship with God, in the promised land, the very place he left in his own human wisdom. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That right there is exactly why we celebrate the birth of Jesus. He came to do that which Abraham could not. He came to do that which you and I could not. And in Him there is forgiveness. But it's not just forgiveness as though your sin is swept under the rug and just ignored. It's forgiveness because He's paid for it and now you have a restored relationship with God. Are you easily distracted? You find your eyes wandering during times of trial and difficulty, no longer living by faith, but starting to, to live by sight. These trials produce perseverance in us. And God delivers us from them, through them, in them, uses them for our good and for His glory. May that be what we celebrate this Christmas. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, we thank You that we have a a model, even in Your Word, of one who is faithless. Because we too are faithless. We thank You that we have a model of, of one who... In, in so many ways, even throughout the New Testament, set up as a, a model of justification by faith alone. And yet who falters? Because we falter. Father, we pray that You would strengthen our faith, equip and encourage us to live by faith, in a world that would rather us live by sight, that would rather us take our eyes off of You and and look to the things of this world for our hope and comfort and deliverance. And Father, we thank You for sending Your Son who would live righteously, sinlessly, and perfectly faithfully in our place. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.